quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Max Foster, today in for Julia Chatterley from London. Now, lots to get through this hour, including the last-minute negotiations to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. Both sides say progress was made in talks held Tuesday, but time is running short. The U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills in just over two weeks' time without an agreement. We'll have a live report in just a moment for you. Uh, Signs of movement in the D.C. negotiations are helping boost the U.S. futures. All the major U.S. stock markets or indices set for a higher open. Europe is trading mixed amid news that eurozone inflation ticked higher again last month. Now shares of regional U.S. banks are higher pre-market after a key player, Western Alliance, said deposits are on the rise again. Its shares set to rise some 13 percent in early trading. That's encouraging news for investors worried about the stability of America's regional banks. In earnings news, shares of the retail giant Target set to open higher. Its latest earnings beating expectations, but sales are slowing as consumers spend less on non-essentials. A busy show, as always. Let's begin with the latest debt ceiling uh, talks, though. Congressional leaders uh, left Tuesday's meeting with President Biden unable to point to any major progress on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. But they did say they've agreed on a process for getting there. Nothing has been resolved in this negotiation. So the only thing that has changed is we finally have a format that has proven to work years in the past. Uh, The clock ticking and some of America's biggest companies are warning of a devastating scenario and potentially disastrous consequences if the U.S. defaults on its debt. CNN Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans joins me now. Uh, Christine, what do you make of the latest moves? Where do we stand? Look, there's a lot of bad choices here and time is running out. Remember, this debt ceiling was hit January 19th, so the Treasury has been moving money around. We are within days of having 90 cents coming in every day for every dollar that's going out. And that means somebody won't get paid. Social Security, federal contractor, interest on our debt. One presumes that would be the last thing the government wouldn't pay. But it's just a very, very dangerous game that's happening here. And that's what these CEOs have said. 150 CEOs with some very, very big companies saying, look, high inflation has already created stresses in our financial system, including several recent bank failures. It'll be much worse if the nation defaults on our debt obligations. So we know this is dangerous territory. And you will hear, and I've been hearing some political people in Washington saying, well, we don't know how bad it would be. Oh, maybe one or two days over the line is okay. I talked to Mark Zandi earlier this morning from Moody's Analytics. He said, that is not a black hole you want to jump into. Uh, It is a very dangerous situation. It has to be resolved. One of the ways they're starting to talk about resolving it here, they have this format for negotiations, Max. That's uh, helpful here. Again, they don't have much time. They have this format for negotiations. Uh, They're going to have to find a way to yes. Does that mean uh, some caps on future spending? 
Uh, does that mean um, toughening some work requirements for welfare programs in the United States, like food stamps, specifically for people who are 50 to 56 years old, able-bodied adults? Are you going to put in a 20-hour a, a 20 hour a month work requirement for those people to continue to get food stamps or, or Medicaid? It's something progressives don't want. It's something that uh, Republicans definitely, definitely want. Where can they find yes? Where can they find that that common ground? We're just seeing little hints of, of, of the contours here, but boy, uh, not enough to, to really think that you can get this done by, by the final day. Uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy talking about these work requirements, uh, insisting they are part of the debt ceiling deal. Uh, explain exactly what they are and what impact they'd have. So these work requirements, there have been work requirements since the 80s for these incredibly important social programs, something called SNAP, which is food stamps, that's food assistance uh, for people, and also Medicaid. These are for low, very low-income Americans who need help uh, with, with health insurance, right? And the idea here is that um, it is better for your economy and better for your country if the weakest people in society have some sort of a safety net. And what the Republicans want to do here is they want to add a work requirement for people over the age of 50. Um, right now, there are work requirements, I think, up to the age of 50. They want to extend that from 50 to 56 years old for able-bodied, um, able-bodied Americans. I think it's 20 hours a week, but there's, there's some meaningful... Um, uh, and, you know, what, a lot, what a lot of economists will say, it doesn't meaningfully add workers or employment, uh, but it does add hardship to the most vulnerable part of society. So this is um, a philosophical argument between the right and the left. And that's playing out now over a debt ceiling, which is, of course, paying the bills that the America has already spent. So here we are again. It happened in 2011. It happened in 2013. And this is the most serious I've seen it um, since then. The hope is here. They can get to yes, Max. We don't know what that's going to look like yet, but they've got to get to yes. Okay. Fingers crossed. Christine Romans, thank you as ever. You're welcome. Uh, the debt ceiling showdown forcing President Biden to cut short his uh, Asia-Pacific trip. The U.S. president is leaving for Japan today to attend the G7 meeting, but cancelling his visits to Australia and Papua New Guinea next week. Mark Stewart live in Hiroshima, where the G7 summit is being held. What's the reaction there to Biden not being there for the full trip? Well, Max, I think it's one of understanding and of practicality. I mean, these leaders are very well aware that if there is a debt ceiling default in the U.S., it could really cause dire consequences around the world. That's perhaps one of the phrases we heard from the Australian prime minister. So there is general understanding that the president has to address that because what could begin as an American problem could be a worldwide problem. And as we have seen, so many economies across the globe are just very fragile right now. I should also point out, Max, that even though he is not going to be traveling to Australia, the president will have contact with members of the so-called Quad. That's Australia, India, Japan, and of course the U.S. that make up the Quad. They will have representatives here at the G7 meeting in, in some effect. So it's not as if these conversations won't happen, but this formal meeting that was hoped to take place in Australia obviously is not, is not going to see U.S. participation. In terms of substance, do you expect much from this meeting? Well, let's talk about expectations. The G7 in the past has actually had some success, particularly when we look at the war in Ukraine. It, it was responsible for levying sanctions and economic penalties against Russia. The question is, will the G7 be able to take things a step further? The reality is that Europe, many nations in Europe actually export goods to Russia. That could be automobiles, even chocolate. In addition, Japan actually imports 
energy from Russia as well. So there is this symbiotic relationship that is still very much intact. The question is, will the G7 take things a step further? And then just about this broader tension in the world, even talk of nuclear weapons at one point by Vladimir Putin uh, in, in this Ukraine conflict. There is good reason to have that, this discussion here in Hiroshima. It's something I discussed uh, just recently in an exclusive interview with Japan's foreign minister. Take a quick listen. One of the reasons why we hosting G7 uh, in Hiroshima is that uh, we would like to send a message and at the same time a uh, message about uh, non-proliferation and the disarmament and at the same time I uh, would like to have summit leaders to see what happened in Hiroshima and share that experience. So Russia, Ukraine is certainly on the agenda. So is China, obviously here in the Indo-Pacific region. Also expect some conversation relating to issues of the environment, possibly the phasing out of coal, perhaps a more specific timeline. We'll just have to see on that one, Max. Okay, Mark Stewart, thank you for joining us from Hiroshima. Now, in Washington, the CEO of ChatGBT, um, uh, the ChatGBT maker, OpenAI, urging U.S. lawmakers to regulate artificial intelligence in a congressional hearing, Sam Altman uh, warned uh, AI could do significant harm to the world. Donny O'Sullivan has the details. And now uh, for some introductory remarks. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. A Senate hearing on AI. The proliferation of disinformation and the deepening of societal inequalities. Beginning with a senator allowing an AI voice tool to give part of his opening statement. If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine and the words from me. But in fact, that voice was not mine. The remarks were written by Chat GPT. ChatGPT, the AI bot that became a global sensation and highlighted just how powerful AI technology can be. My name is Sam Altman. The CEO of the company behind ChatGPT, testifying before Congress for the first time today. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. Not downplaying the power and the danger of the technology his company is pioneering. Artificial intelligence has the potential to improve nearly every aspect of our lives, but also that it creates serious risks we have to work together to manage. Altman joined on Capitol Hill by an IBM AI executive and Gary Marcus, a former NYU professor and self-described critic of AI hype. We acted too slowly with social media. Many unfortunate decisions got locked in with lasting consequence. The choices we make now will have lasting effects for decades, maybe even centuries. The wide-ranging implications of AI reflected in the topics discussed, like jobs. Like with all technological revolutions, I expect there to be significant impact on jobs. GPT-4 will, uh, I think, entirely automate away some jobs, and it will create new ones that we believe will be much better. Overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Voter targeting and the use of deepfake video and audio in elections. Should we be worried about this for our elections? It's one of my areas of greatest concern. National security, how AI could be used by America's adversaries. There are huge implications for national security. I will tell you, as a member of the Armed Services Committee, uh, classified briefings on this issue have abounded. 
Even the music industry, where AI has been used to clone famous recording artists' voices and create whole new songs. Who owns the right to that AI-generated material? I went in this weekend and I said, write me a song that sounds like Garth Brooks, and it gave me a different version of Simple Man. Senators eager not to repeat mistakes of the past. We cannot afford to be as late to responsibly regulating generative AI as we have been to social media because the consequences, both positive and negative, will exceed those of social media by orders of magnitude. Uh, Donny joins me now. I mean, when you watch this hearing, you, you know, you definitely got a sense that this is a massive issue that's going to have a profound effect on the world, but almost too big to regulate in a way. I mean, where are they even going to start? Exactly, Max. Yeah, I mean, they barely scratched the surface yesterday. You know, you saw in that piece there, uh, it's going to affect everything. Industry, jobs, you know, the recording industry, misinformation, disinformation, elections, national security. Um, So obviously, they're really going to have to start having hearings um, on these individual issues. Uh, But, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to legislate around this is is a whole other matter. You heard there um, Senator Chris Coons mentioning, you know, a bit of regret uh, that the they didn't that Congress didn't rein in uh, big tech uh, social media platforms uh, over the last decade and you know I was looking yesterday it was actually quite remarkable that you know right now ChatGBT which really kind of put all the focus on AI over the past six months and really was I think a wake up call for the world on how powerful this technology could be uh, you know the the CEO of that the of that, the company that's behind that tool testifying yesterday, you know, within six months of this being released, it took Mark Zuckerberg 14 years uh, to, to testify before Congress. 14 years of, of Facebook was around. He didn't show up to Congress to be called to testify until uh, 2018 after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, so you can see uh, lawmakers are trying to get ahead of this. Uh, whether it will be fruitful remains to be seen. Okay, Tony, thank you. I'm sure you'll be watching. Now, meanwhile, uh, Elon Musk, an early investor in OpenAI, sharing his views on artificial intelligence in an interview. I think it's 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 very much a double double-edged sword. I think in, it's there's there's a, there's a strong probability that it will make life much better, uh, and that we'll have an age of abundance, um, and and there's some chance that it goes wrong, um, and. Uh, destroys humanity. Hopefully that chance is small, but it's not zero. Uh, Back in March, Musk um, co-signed an open letter calling for a six-month pause on AI development. Turning now to a developing story out of northern Italy, though, where torrential rain and mudslides have killed at least eight people. Thousands have been forced to evacuate their homes and landslides and floods also wreaking havoc in the Balkans from Slovenia to Croatia and Bosnia. Barbie Nado joins us live Uh, from Rome. So the Formula One's been called off. People are dying. This is uh, much worse than many people thought initially this morning. That's absolutely right. You know, as you mentioned, eight people so far confirmed dead, many people still missing. You know, these rescuers are carrying out just heroic rescues, rescuing people from upper floors of homes, from flooded vehicles. You know, this really did come as a bit of a surprise. They had some flooding and torrential rains earlier in the month, but this is really, really, really strong. And the rain continues to to fall down. Some of the rivers have been compromised. Bridges have been washed out. It's a really drastic situation. And the rain is still falling, Max. Okay, uh, Barbie, thank you so much for that. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Straight ahead, debt ceiling drama, the so-called ex-state to default is drawing closer. We'll discuss the impact it could have on the US and global financial markets with economist Ezra Prasad after the break.
Uh, welcome back. Russia unleashed missiles and artillery shells on Ukraine late on Tuesday with a focus on the southeastern region. One U.S. official says Moscow's recent wave of aerial bombardment, bombardments may be an attempt to confuse and overwhelm Ukraine's air defences. And a Ukrainian Air Force spokesman is calling Russian claims that a Kinzhal missile destroyed a U.S. Patriot defense system based in Kyiv, like the one seen here, quote, impossible. A U.S. official tells CNN the system was likely damaged but not destroyed. Meanwhile, fighting continues around Bakhmut, where Kyiv says it has gained ground. Nick Robertson has more from eastern Ukraine. Ah. On Bakhmut's destroyed streets, two Ukrainian soldiers bolster flagging spirits with dark humour. Oh, that boom, boom, boom. Is that on us, one says? Oh no, the other jokes. We're enchanted. They're not for us. Russia's push for the remaining Ukrainian-controlled high-rises around them has not relented, despite recent successes taking ground north and south of the meat grinder town. In a field hospital nearby, troops concussed by heavy Russian shelling inside Bakhmut. How was the fight in Bakhmut compared to Kherson and other places? Bakhmut is so much. Call sign White, a 47-year-old former warehouse manager, tells us Bakhmut is his hardest battle yet. It's hell, he says. How is the morale at the front line? He pauses, sighs and whispers. It's hard. Tanks, too, are getting chewed up in the Bakhmut meat grinder. This Soviet-era T-72 blasted by shelling there. Repairs made in hedgerows because workshops are getting targeted. The shrapnel holes don't matter, this tank commander tells us. What's important is the engine and the reactive armour. Locations of repair hideaways like this one are a closely guarded secret. Once the counteroffensive begins, they will be even more vital to keep the military and its machines moving. In a combat bunker buried outside Bakhmut, troops have no idea when or where the big offensive will come. The monitor in the battlefield from here, we can't show you the screens that they're looking down from drones. As soon as a Russian soldier puts his head up and moves, you see it. Morale here, high, because they've recently made gains across fields surrounding the town. Early success in the coming counteroffensive will be critical. The lessons of Bakhmut, momentum and motivation is all. Nick Robertson, CNN, Eastern Ukraine. Let's come back to one of our top stories, the risk that uh, June the 1st we'll see the uh, U.S. government run out of cash, essentially, to pay the bills in the absence of an agreement on raising the debt ceiling. Comments were more positive after Tuesday's debt talks between President Biden and congressional leaders. But everyone acknowledging there's still a long way to go. Uh, the president heads for the G7 summit in Japan later today, but he's now shortened his trip to make time for more talks in Washington. Stops in Sydney and Papua New Guinea next week were scratched from the itinerary. And with time running out, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is again warning that a default would negatively impact America's credit rating. She plans to meet with bank CEOs on Thursday, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon and Citigroup's Jane Fraser. Joining me now is Eswar Prasad, Senior Professor of International Trade Policy at Cornell University. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, is it a positive or a negative sign that Biden is cutting short his uh, trip to deal with this? 
Well, Max, hope springs eternal that sanity will finally prevail in Washington, D.C. And it's certainly good that the two sides are talking, but it seems like there is a great distance between them in terms of what they want to get out of this debt ceiling fight. And certainly we shouldn't even be having this fight, given that it's creating a lot of instability in financial markets at a time when the U.S. economy seems poised to head into a recession. So it's not a good time for this to be happening. Uh, a very, very tight deadline if an agreement is to be reached, because obviously uh, Congress uh, only works certain days and they've got a huge amount of detail to get through. Are you concerned that even if they you know, did agree something soon, it wouldn't get done by the time the deadline comes? There is a real risk that the process um, could end up uh, um, becoming a problem in itself because, as you say, um, there is very little time left to resolve this. Now, we don't know the exact date on which uh, the Treasury is going to start uh, running out of money to meet its obligations, but it's clear uh, that the effects are already beginning to become apparent in financial markets with the yield on U.S. government bonds beginning to rise, and that's going to start having ripple effects on the economy, even if this does get resolved in time. And if it doesn't, there is going to be a big price to pay. Uh, what sort of dates are we looking at in terms of market volatility? Um, when do they start to get really nervous and potentially start falling sharply? I think with every day that passes, the stock markets are going to get a little more nervous, and more importantly, the bond markets are going to get nervous. And this is very important because the U.S. Treasury securities market is really the underpinning of the U.S. financial system. It benchmarks a great number of securities in the U.S. and indeed in the rest of the world. So if there are tremors in the U.S. Treasury securities market, that is going to very quickly ripple into other financial markets in the U.S. and indeed around the world. Yeah, it's a very worrying potential scenario, isn't it? Uh, but are you confident there are areas of overlap where they could potentially find some agreement? It seems like both sides do want to uh, bring this to a reasonable conclusion because the reality is that if they don't come to an agreement, this is going to have a cataclysmic effect on the U.S. economy. And certainly right now, the political issue seems to be who's going to get the blame if, if this happens. But I don't think either side really wants to see this happen to the U.S. economy because this is, again, a very fragile time for the U.S. economy. It's going to hurt consumers and businesses a great deal if the two sides don't come to an agreement. So I very much hope that they can pull it together. Yeah, absolutely. Aswar Prasad, Senior Professor of International Trade Policy at Cornell University. Thank you for joining us with your insight. Now, Thailand's reformist Move Forward Party is setting out its plans for change and says a priority is to demilitarize the country. The party won the most seats and the largest share of the vote in the weekend's elections. It's a crushing blow to Thailand's military-backed establishment. The party leader spoke to Zane Asher on Quest Means Business. I think it's pretty clear that people have demanded change here in Thailand, you know, with the historical voting turnout in Thai politically history, it's very clear that it's a sentiment of the era has changed and we have developed a consensus for a new day here in Bangkok, Thailand. So even though you won the most seats and you won the largest share of the popular vote, it is obviously one thing to actually win the election. It's another thing entirely to actually become prime minister, especially because the military has so right. much say in this process. Just walk us through some of right. the challenges that face you and your party going forward. Well, I think it's, it's pretty clear that the coalition is taking shape 
as we speak or right now, I have my negotiation team, I have my transition team to make sure that the transition of power is smooth. Uh, however, the process is uh, three steps from now. The election committee has to endorse the candidacy. Then we have to elect a House speaker. And then the third step would to have uh, joint voting between the lower house and the upper house. That's where it's uh, politics of elected by 25 million people against appointed of senators from uh, military uh, coup back uh, in the last decade. So that will be the kind of uh, struggles that people are uh, looking at. However, I have my uh, scenario analysis of various scenarios that could come out and we have prepared uh, a strategic response to prepare for each of the scenarios that might take up. Now, coming up with teenage obesity, a serious health problem, one gym is offering a solution. I'll speak to the CEO of Planet Fitness about the company's summer program. First move, US stocks up and running this Wednesday. As you can see, a higher open across the board. Stocks bouncing back from Tuesday's losses amid some signs of progress in the bipartisan debt ceiling negotiations. Uh, the White House press secretary saying on CNN's this morning that President Biden will monitor the ongoing talks during his shortened trip to uh, overseas territories. America does not default on its debt. That's why the president is cutting his, short, his trip short. Uh, that's why he's going to return, continue these conversations that he's had with congressional leaders as, as he's directed his staff to continue their daily uh, conversation. He's optimistic. He's optimistic that we'll get to a reasonable bipartisan budget deal that can get to his deck that he can sign. Well, the U.S. could default on its debt as soon as early June if there's no deal to raise that debt ceiling. Around a fifth of 12 to 19-year-olds in the United States are obese, according to the nation's public health agency, the CDC. It also warns adolescent mental health remains in crisis. Both issues are on the radar at the gym chain Planet Fitness, which markets itself as a judgment-free zone. It's allowing high school teens to work out for free in its clubs in the US and Canada over the summer. Of course, the move could build lasting brand loyalty amongst Gen Z as well. Uh, that's one of the biggest uh, growth markets for Planet Fitness. It has over 2,400 gyms in North America, as well as an international presence in countries including Mexico and Australia. Chris uh, Rondeau is the CEO of Planet Fitness. Thank you so much for joining us. What, what gave you this idea? Oh, thank you, Max. Thanks for having me on. You know, it was happened uh, in 2019 was our first year we did it. And, uh, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do, you know, and, and hopefully you're right. Real, real brand loyalty and brand awareness. But, you know, teens, uh, as you've mentioned, are going through a lot of mental mental health and mental stress issues. And and uh, it was definitely something that made a lot of sense. So we did it. We had a million teens in 2019. And then because of COVID, we couldn't do it again for a couple of years. We relaunched it last year and it took off to three and a half million teens in one summer. So really excited to bring it back this year. And that just shows right there the, the increase in number of teens that got involved with the program, how important this really is to them. A lot of young people obviously struggling financially as well. We're living in a cost of living crisis. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things they can't normally don't really jump to. But then once they see the benefits, do you see them staying and then willing to pay the memberships long term? 
Yeah, since since last year, we've had ten percent of the teens actually convert to paying members. So, uh, so it is is paying off long term. But uh, but it's really you know that's like the byproduct of it. The real important thing is get them off the couch, build their brand loyalty, and it'll pay off in the long run, which is what we're looking for. And take us to the mental health as well, because uh, lots of studies out talking about the mental health of young people, how they're struggling in today's world. How much difference is going to the gym making on that front? Yeah, we, we believe that too as well. And we see a lot of studies that say that, you know, it's not really so much, so much about the waistline anymore. Like it used to be years ago. It's really about, you know, feeling better about yourself and having more energy and sleeping better and dealing with stress. And we're seeing that members are working out more. Um, our cancellation rate for seven straight quarters has improved, which is even better even in today's economic climate and pressure people are getting on the wall with inflation. That members are staying longer, which is great. And, uh, and we have two memberships, a $10 entry level membership a month, 10 bucks, and our twenty four ninety nine. Membership gives you a lot of other perks and are actually the 2499 continues to sell just like it did in the past. You obviously lost a lot of memberships because of lockdown and the pandemic, didn't you? Uh, uh, have you managed to make all of that back now? Where do you sit with that curve? Yeah, we actually, at the end of uh, 2020, we bottomed out at about 13 and a half million members. And we added, uh, we're now back to 18.1 million. So far exceeded our pre-pandemic levels. And uh, in the first quarter, we added 1.1 million uh, net members. And that was the uh, biggest uh, net member growth since 2020, uh, first quarter. Are you struggling with people worried about the future as well? You know, the state of the economy, people putting off, uh, you know, bigger um, very high cost purchases for now until they know what's going to happen. Are you finding that's the same as well with gym memberships? People might be holding off a bit until they know how much money they're going to have coming in. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we actually in some ways benefit from this economic climate in ways where, you know, people aren't going to necessarily not work out, but, you know, are they going to pay the, the 50 or $100 a month membership for for towels for the for the shower or for pools that they're not going to use or or rock walls, right? So so with us at 10 bucks a month, we have, you know, nuts and bolts, great cardio and, and strength equipment. Uh, same stuff you'll find at a $100 a month club, quite honestly, um, and 2,400 locations. So it's always convenient. Most of the stores are 24 hours a day. Uh, so I don't think people will not work out, but they'll choose Planet if they're really watching their their, their wallets. Yeah, it's expensive kit, isn't it? And you've got a lot of staff as well. Um, wage, price, inflation. How's that hitting your costs? Yeah, it's a little bit, but luckily with our model, uh, Max, we don't have all the Group X classes and and um, and different daycares and juice bars and things like that. Tons of uh, fitness equipment, great locker rooms. So our staffing model per per store is only about twelve to fifteen total. So although a little bit of inflation. Uh, with wages, it doesn't really affect our business model that, that, that drastically. Okay, I really appreciate your time. Chris uh, Rondo, CEO of Planet Fitness, thank you for joining us here on the show. Thank you. Uh, fitness fanatics love to talk endlessly about the importance of food preparation, of course. And a chef in Nigeria is hoping to set a world record after uh, she cooked nonstop for four days, beating the current record of more than 87 hours. She created dozens of Nigerian dishes and her cooking marathon captivated the country. Sinez Stephanie Bazari has more. Nigerian chef Hilda Efiongbasi has become a national sensation after cooking nonstop for 100 hours possibly setting a new world record. The chef started cooking on Thursday and created more than 55 recipes and over 100 meals designed to showcase the best of Nigerian cuisine. Hilda remained in high spirits despite the lack of sleep and her fans went to great lengths to support her. 
We outside for you, the Basi. When a Nigerian is doing something, we all come out, we show support. One man even traveled for hundreds of kilometers through the night to get to the venue in Lagos. I drove 12 hours just to be here, you know. The chef's cookathon trended nationwide as celebrities and politicians, including the governor of Lagos, visited her. Musicians also created a party and concert atmosphere. The crowd is going absolutely crazy. Hilda Bassi has just passed 96 hours in her four-day cooking marathon. She passed the world record hours ago, but she decided to keep on going, to go the extra mile. I'm very tired, but at the same time, I feel very blessed and really excited as well. The first day was the most difficult, and I was, I was, I was ready to give up six hours a day, but I feel like a miracle happened, and some way, somehow, I got to this point. The record to beat was set in 2019 by Indian chef Lata Tondon, who posted a message of support to Hilda during her attempt. The Guinness World Record Committee still has to confirm that all their criteria have been met. But for Nigerians, there's a new record breaker in town, and her name is Hilda Bassi. Stephanie Busari, CNN, Lagos. Now, scary turn for a children's baseball game in Florida. Uh, it's a dust devil. Uh, it was formed on the home plate. As you can see, it engulfed the seven-year-old catcher before a teenage umpire quickly pulled him to safety. Although the small whirlwind only lasted a few seconds, he said it felt like 10 minutes. Here's how he described the experience. I couldn't breathe that much, so I hurted my breath, and I feel like I couldn't touch the ground, so I kind of lifted up a little bit. I didn't know what to do, so I was thinking about something that was happy, not like that, so, so I don't get freaked about. What a memory. Uh, turning now to an inside look at one of Africa's highest profile drug makers, Aspen Pharmacare. The 170-year-old company has a huge footprint across the continent. It found itself challenged as never before during the COVID pandemic. Eleni Jokos spoke to CEO Stephen Saad in today's Connecting Africa. I think the pandemic really, uh, really sparked the world. And certainly we were really proud to be able to deliver a vaccine to the continent in the quantities that we did. But the reality of COVID was that, you know, Africa n didn't get vaccinated. And we've done a few pandemics, whether it was AIDS or multi-drug resistant TB. We have to be strong regionally. Instead of saying, look, we've lost the COVID vaccine volumes and so we're closing up, we've actually put even more capacity in. And that is really to be able to provide cover for the continent in total. We committed to one person, one vaccine in Africa, and we're working very hard towards that process. And it's a lot of machinery coming in, a big capacity ramp up. If I had to ask you to d define and describe what the pharmaceutical sector right now looks like in Africa, a continent that is disproportionately affected by disease compared to other regions in the world, what would your answer be? I think the answer is this simple. You know, when COVID came and Africa uh, needed uh, vaccines, what we found out was that over 90-odd percent of the vaccines were supplied out of India. 
at the end of the day, you can't ask politicians or other countries to supply someone else before them. I don't think anybody wants Africans to suffer. But the reality, and we saw it, whether it was Europeans or India, the borders closed and they looked after their own population first. So the bottom line is Africa really didn't have an industry. If it hadn't been for Aspen, there would have been no vaccines made in Africa for the continent. The African Union has a target uh, to achieve at least a 30% offtake of all vaccines for, from African manufacturers. It's taken you a few decades to get to where you are. How quickly can we get manufacturing hubs operational with good manufacturing practices, you know, meeting regulatory environments in other parts of Africa? We can easily get to 30%. Aspirin could do that alone across Africa quite easily. We want to build capacity for one person and one vaccine across Africa. And that's what we're doing. So I think we can do it. You also don't want this vested in one country or one company specifically. You can go and deliver this across Africa and you can be an exporter. But I think if you want to do something, you can get yourself in the forefront of, of trying to assist humanity uh, when needed. If I just say to you, what is the next most exciting market for you right now in Africa for you to produce products and to manufacture? Where would that be? We have a big presence in East Africa. So, so that's an area that you, know, you try and build on your strengths. But it would be really important to be strong in West Africa where there's a lot of people. At the end of the day, we're a consumer business. Having access into West Africa is important. And servicing those people who are underserviced is a real opportunity. To do that, we've, we've really got to build up the GDPs across our, our continent. But you need healthy people for that. Indeed. That's it for this show. Marketplace Asia, though, is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 